was a Bitcoin. Yeah. What is up, Bitcoiners? I just had an amazing conversation with Seb Bunny. He is a Bitcoin Magazine contributor and an amazing new entrant into the Bitcoin philosophy and economic space. He is a passionate teacher. He has a history in just kind of understanding how the financial system works, understanding decentralization versus centralization. And he has dropped three incredible articles on Bitcoin Magazine. On this podcast, we focus on one is latest. It is an absolute beast. We didn't even get through all of the points. We didn't even get to actually talking about how Bitcoin fixes this in this podcast, but we did get into a lot of what is wrong and what is the truth behind Bitcoin's government opposition. Seb focuses in on the Fed and Seb breaks down what is behind their control of money, why they want control of money, the power that controlling money gives them, and then the money that the U.S. government and the Fed is willing to spend and where they are willing to spend it to protect the dollar and protect their global reserve status. This is an eye-opening podcast. This is an eye-opening article. If you want to read the article as well as a lot of Seb's other stuff, go to the show notes. It's all in there. But until then, just get ready for a roller coaster. This one has a lot of ammunition for you Bitcoiners to use when talking about why Bitcoin and why it's so important that we move off of the dollar system and we move on to an open and permissionless Bitcoin. Money, 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 money. I mean, I know money, what cryptocurrency is. Bitcoiners, I'm sitting across the screen from an extremely brilliant and extremely underfollowed Bitcoiner, Sebastian Bonet. He has been dropping a lot of knowledge on Bitcoin Magazine and on Twitter and everywhere where he's kind of active in the Bitcoin space. So I'm really excited to dive into one of his recent Bitcoin Magazine articles on this podcast. But before we get into that, Sebastian, welcome to the show. Why don't you introduce yourself to the Bitcoiners out there? Hey guys. Yeah, I'm relatively new to the scene and Bitcoin absolutely just hooked me. I originally started out in teaching mountain biking, actually, which is not the course that most people go down to get into Bitcoin. Teaching mountain biking, teaching sports for years. And I love just like passing on knowledge and teaching others and educating others. And over the last 10 years, kind of as a little side hobby, I've been fascinated by the financial markets, trading options and trading futures. Then I ended up stumbling on Bitcoin probably about five years ago, just through documentaries. And in the last year and a half, two years, absolutely, I've just gone down the rabbit hole, dropped everything, quit my job, and I've just focused on Bitcoin. And that is kind of my purpose, just to educate others at the moment. Wow. When I discovered Bitcoin, I did the same thing. It took about three months for me to quit my job. Thankfully, two months later, I started working for BTC Inc. on the conference side of things. So it didn't take too long for me to go full-time Bitcoin, but it's intoxicating and you just kind of have to go head first and all in. Oh, 100%. I feel lucky that I've had a few little things in life that I think paved the way for me to understand Bitcoin. And like one in particular, and this isn't meant to be just like a sympathy story. It's more just one of my like stepping stones to kind of understanding Bitcoin. When I was about nine years old, I wanted this scooter in this little toy store. And I saved up for probably three or four months for this scooter. And we walked into the toy store with my dad and my two brothers. And my dad wasn't too fond of me being into sports. He wanted me to go down more of the academic route. And my brothers were much more academic. So I went to go pay for the scooter that I saved up for three or four months. And my dad ended up buying my other two brothers the same scooter. They didn't have to save for it. He felt that it was unfair that I was getting a scooter. And so 
that's kind of like if you ever heard of the Cantillon effect, the Cantillon effect is those closest to kind of for the flow of money end up benefiting the most. And so that's me learning about like centralization versus decentralization. That's kind of what I feel laid the framework very early on for understanding decentralization. Wow, that's a very interesting idea. And to be honest, I kind of remember being on the opposite side of something like that. My younger brother, Mark, who was a lot more entrepreneurial than I in our youth, had saved up for a MacBook when he was like 13. And we go to the Mac store and I'm like bitching to my dad, like, I want a MacBook. (laughs) He was like, well, you didn't save up for it. I'm sorry. So he had the opposite mentality. And maybe that's what snapped me out of being a child and being a little bit more conscious about, you know, saving and earning. Oh, 100%. And I'm sure we'll dive into it. But I think this is one of like the fundamental reasons why I believe in something like Bitcoin is we should be encouraging saving. I think encouraging saving is what's going to help promote kind of humanity as opposed to consumption is just kind of destroy our ecosystem. So yeah, I'm definitely all for Bitcoin. So you dropped three really incredible articles. We're going to talk about your most recent one, which is the truth behind Bitcoin's opposition. But I really, really loved both Bitcoin and the illusion of reality. And when more isn't better, inflation in the 21st century Before we get into the most recent article, do you kind of want to just tease into your inspiration in some of these articles on Bitcoin Magazine? Oh, for sure. So I find when it comes to Bitcoin, it's easy to get wrapped up in all of the hype surrounding it and looking at the micro, which is like the on-chain data, the price, and just kind of like the local community. And I think sometimes it can be challenging to kind of look at Bitcoin more holistically and look at the bigger picture and look at why Bitcoin is seeing the opposition that it is seeing. Another thing is... When you look at the way government approach things, there's a really good book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I've probably butchered that last name. And basically, I think you I got the it. human Yeah, I think hopefully. Yeah. The human brain has basically got two sides to it. It's got kind of like its fast thinking brain and its slow thinking brain. And I think that the government takes advantage of our fast thinking brain, which is basically our fast thinking brain just reacts and it doesn't necessarily objectively look at things and rationally process information. And we live in such like a stimulated environment these days. And we're given so much stimulus through social media and just general day-to-day stuff that I think that it just throws information at us and we don't necessarily process it. So I wanted to kind of write a slightly more long form piece that kind of explains the world that we're in and maybe why we're seeing the opposition which we're seeing with Bitcoin and focus on maybe our slow thinking brain. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like that framework. And, you know, I hope you continue to give that mentality to more articles and topics related to Bitcoin. So let's get into the truth behind Bitcoin's opposition. I thought it was really interesting that you framed it as like the government opposition for the most part, and you kind of went from there. But then you before really kind of getting into their opposition, you kind of really dive into the problem and what is money. So do you kind of just want to jump into your explanation for money? Because I personally found it to be quite elegant and relatively relatable. For sure. If we go all the way back so people have better understanding as to like what is money, I think we can better understand why Bitcoin sees opposition. In the article, I kind of used just a general phrase for money, and that is an economy's generally accepted and recognized medium of exchange that is used to facilitate trade for goods and services. And I think that's what most people think of money. Now, without money, I think humanity would, it it struggles because we're basically on a a barter system. We're basically trying to swap goods for goods. And it's hard to find someone who has what you need and I have what they need. So money is like 100% necessary in society. But I think where we have drifted away from that is as we've moved towards the monetary system that we use today. And I think when we run an inflationary monetary system, I think this is where the problems arise. And so when we look at money, 
if you think about it in the, like the simplest terms, there's basically like two ways to basically obtain money. And I think the first one is basically you just have to like expend time and energy and you can basically earn money. That's basically going to do your job, there's labor, those type of things. And then the second one, we must trade goods and resources for money. And realistically, to get those goods and resources, we have to have expended time and energy to get those goods and resources. So in like a simple mathematical formula, you can think of money as basically just equal to time and energy. And I think that's really important. We'll touch on that in a second. But I think that's really important to remember is that all money is, is realistically, it's a store of time and energy. And it allows us to basically use that time and energy at a future date and time, which I think is really important. That concept, it's like living without the ability to kind of store your work, store your time and energy. I don't think people will really fundamentally understand how important that is to society functioning. It's like the bedrock of society functioning. And then here, the bedrock of our society's function is kind of this top-down manipulated thing. And beyond just the dollar, there's just fractals of even worse top-down manipulated fiats out there. So it really is like this global systemic issue that we need to address. Oh, 100%. And I think it also, living in a developed country, it's easy to kind of think that this is the norm. Like our society has issues with inflation and money manipulation. But man, when you start digging into some of the developing countries, it is way worse. Like you look at Argentina, and I believe Argentina has defaulted four times in the last like 30 or 40 years. So there's a lot worse problems than the US dollar and the Canadian dollar. So Seb, you touch into how the Fed actually controls the monetary supply. I know that does the Fed even have any control whatsoever is up for debate, but they Mm -hmm. absolutely have these tools and they will mess with these tools in the attempt to control the monetary supply and the economy. Do you kind of want to dive into some of the tools that they tap into and what those tools are supposed to do? For sure. Yeah. So where a lot of people get confused is the Fed was initially kind of designed as this private entity that's separate of government, and it's basically just meant to regulate money. And I believe this came about in, I think, like 1913 or something, when JP Morgan ended up bailing out the economy due to a run on the banks. And the Fed was basically put in place to help, rather than having this inelastic money supply, which could create the potential for bank runs, even though we, we can talk about that with Bitcoin, isn't necessarily true. The Fed was put in place to kind of regulate the money supply. And when you look at the Fed nowadays, it is not this private entity. Like the Board of Governors that basically controls the Fed is a government agency that's put in place by the president and the political members in, in power. And so it is so far removed from what it is meant to be now that it's basically just an arm of the government. And so suddenly you're looking at government being able to control the money supply. So effectively, they can fund themselves. So do they need to act in the best interest of the population and the people who it's meant to be kind of governing and running? In terms of the Fed itself and kind of what it's meant to do, the Fed is basically just to regulate the US monetary and financial system. And it does that through monetary policy. And so if you look at the Fed and its kind of main monetary tools, it's basically got kind of like four tools. And so that's open market operations. And open market operations are kind of general operations where you're basically buying up short-term treasury bonds. And the idea of buying up short-term treasury bonds from kind of the banking sector is you're able to lower the short-term rates because you're putting more demand for short-term treasuries. And not only that, when it comes to buying up short-term treasuries from the banks, 
you're also giving the banks, these big commercial banks, you're giving them reserves. And those reserves are what allow the banks to go out and then lend money. You can then look at the next one, which is quantitative easing. Quantitative easing, everyone's probably heard of quantitative easing when it comes to 2008 and like recently with COVID. Quantitative easing is kind of an extension of open market operations. But now instead of focusing on the short-term treasuries, you're focusing on long-term treasuries in order to kind of subdue and suppress the long-term interest rates. And then you've got the third one, which is the discount rate. And the discount rate is effectively the rate at which banks can basically lend and borrow between one another. And if you lower interest rates on their ability to lend and borrow between one another, you're promoting borrowing and lending and more the expansion of the money supply. And then the fourth one is basically modifying reserve requirements. We basically operate on a fractional reserve banking system, which basically means that a bank doesn't have to hold, like basically if it wants to lend out $100, it doesn't need to have $100 in the first place. It can have $10 and then go and lend out $100. And this is basically only needs to have, hold a fraction of what it lends out in reserves. And this is basically the, the premise or the, the simple premise behind the fractional reserve banking system. And so if it modifies the reserve requirements, then banks can effectively lend out more or less depending on what those reserve requirements are. And so with these four tools, the Fed can effectively adjust the money supply. And most of the time, like mostly throughout history, money supply has gone up. It hasn't necessarily come back down again. And so this is the issue. And this is what we're facing. When people have the ability to adjust the money supply, if you can add liquidity to the economy and allow it to kind of boom, then people like to kind of keep pumping money into the economy, but then you get a lot of negative side effects. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of, again, debate on if this, these central banks and if the Fed have a fine tooth dial on these things, or if it's more or less like a a rugged on off switch, I typically kind of have the position that yes, they're trying to manipulate, but they have no control over the actual outcome. And that actually exacerbates the issue even more because they can't control this. Like the dollar system is beyond just the US government and the Fed too. It's like this system that has zero dollars and has all these synthetic alternatives elsewhere and not directly even part of it. So it really is just this massive mess. And then you tap in the fact that it's not even allowed to kind of operate with consistency because the Fed is trying to like fix it or manipulate it or whatever. It's just kind of hilarious to watch. 100%. My take on it is the Fed is basically looking in the rear view mirror and the, the front windscreen is basically just fogged. I think they have no idea what they're doing. I think they're basically just being reactionary to what happens in society. They're not basically pre-planning ahead and looking at what may happen. I think they're just being reactionary to these stresses that basically come about. The moment the stock market starts to drop, oh, you just add liquidity. And I think when you're being reactionary, I don't think you can necessarily plan for the second order consequences. Yeah, I love that analogy that the Fed is driving with a foggy front mirror and they're just like looking, they're like looking in the rear view and just trying to react to what they see in the back. It's kind of insane that once you actually understand the scope of what is happening. But on the flip side, part of the Fed and its mandate is this idea that 2% inflation is good and that prices should be going up over time. And this is something that's just widely accepted. In the article, you kind of just tease out what's wrong with that idea and how that just doesn't even make logical sense when you kind of like think of how the world is progressing with technology, innovation, and efficiency. Do you kind of want to just dive into debunking that economic philosophy? Oh, for sure. And so I would preface this by just saying, if you haven't read The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth, he goes into this in far more depth. And I think he gives such a phenomenal explanation as to kind of what is going on. And so 
basically, at the moment, if you look at what the Fed is mandated to do, they basically have this dual mandate, which is price stability and the maximum employment. And then they kind of achieve this through targeting inflation, or like a 2% inflation target. Now, if we actually just logically think about how society functions and how technology works, you start to realize that actually this is super broken. Because if you think about technology, technology is all about getting more for less. So every single thing that's ever been created is about getting more for less. We're not trying to get less for more. And so if you think about like Netflix, for instance, within like three quarters of Blockbuster doing its biggest ever earnings, Netflix basically bankrupted them because it was consolidating the movie industry. If you look at like Spotify doing the same thing, if you look at motor vehicles taking over horseback, like everything is basically to allow us to get more for less. And when you look at what the Fed is doing with inflation, it's trying to basically add more money, which is basically allowing things to cost more over time instead of less, which is the opposite of what technology is doing. And so the way I kind of look at it is the world is very broken at the moment, just because we should be seeing cheaper prices over time. As technology kind of advances, the prices should come down in value. And we do see that in certain aspects, like the cost of TVs and the cost of cell phones. But I think we should be seeing it in healthcare. We should be seeing it in houses. We should be seeing it in pretty much everything around us. And we should be seeing a strengthening currency instead of a devaluing currency. And then if you dig into maximum employment, this one also doesn't seem to make sense because if our world is naturally deflationary because everything should be coming down in price, it should not be going up in price, then naturally the cost of living should actually come down in price, which means over time, we should be able to work less for the same output. And so if we're working less for the same output, then why are we trying to target maximum employment? Should we not be going into like a renaissance period where we can focus on more artistic, like expressionist endeavors? And I think that's where something like Bitcoin allows us to kind of achieve more of that free lifestyle where our money goes further instead of if you hold it, it's worth less over time. So I think that's really, really important to realize is that what the Fed is targeting at the moment is a very skewed view on reality. And I think at the moment they are forced to continue their skewed view on reality because it benefits them, which we'll, we'll dive into in a little bit. The next part of your article is once you've explained potentially the promises of deflation and why it's something that's natural for humanity, you kind of break out the effects of inflation and like what happens there, I guess, just from like a monetary perspective. Oh, 100%. And so when you look at inflation, I think the challenging thing is a lot of these little policy changes that the Fed implements, because they're so minute, you don't necessarily feel the effect straight away. And so Again, going back to the whole like thinking fast and slow, I think we're given so much stimulus day to day that it's so hard to remember what life was like pre-pandemic, let alone five years ago, 10 years ago. And so it's hard to be able to kind of pinpoint the effects of what the Fed is doing to our monetary system. I would say like the negative effects of inflation are like first, if you add dollars to the system, those dollars aren't creating more value. They're just diluting the previous value. And so the analogy I give in the article is like, you think of like pizza. If you order a pizza and it comes with four slices, if you add more money to the monetary system, you're not getting two pizzas. Let's say you double the money supply. You're not getting two pizzas. All you're basically doing is cutting your pizza into a further four more slices. So now you have eight slices. So you don't have any more pizza. You have the same amount of pizza. You've just made more slices. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that. If we had a gold-backed society, a money backed by gold, that'd be a different story. But because our money is backed by debt, and every single time we want to kind of expand the money supply, it's basically a liability on either the bank or the Fed's balance sheet. I think this is where, if anything, we're just creating further issues in society. The next one is when we basically expand the monetary supply, because we're creating a liability, 
we're now having to, to divert our productive capacity towards paying down interest as opposed to be able to using it to expand the economy or humanity or put it towards like R&D and technology and stuff. The third key effect of inflation is kind of like a loss of accurate measurement. So if you think about it, the dollar, and we briefly talked about this before the podcast, CK, the dollar, a lot of people tend to think of, oh, my house is going up in value. My assets are going up in value. Like this is awesome. But I think what a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that it's not your house is going up in value. It is the fact that the dollar is actually going down in value. And so because the dollar is going down in value and can constantly be expanded, if we're trying to use the dollar as a form of measurement, like a, trying to build a house with a measuring stick, but the measuring stick is constantly changing in measurement, it makes it almost impossible to build a house. And so I think that a lot of people don't, people don't realize is that inflation is causing us to lose the dollar as an accurate form of measurement. And then the subsequent effect of that is because we're using the dollar as a economic indicator, like the dollar basically leads interest rates, it leads kind of asset prices, it leads the majority of things around us are priced in dollars. So if our indicator is distorted, then how can we make accurate decisions to kind of help us error correct and grow humanity? And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And a point that another Bitcoin magazine contributor makes is from Aaron Segal. You know, he brings up like, we don't even know how insidious that 2% is because we're not even capable of thinking about what does 50 years of fiat money on a compounding basis do to the output of our economy, right? So we're not talking about 2% distortion on what we're trying to do in terms of measuring and allocating capital. We're talking about two to whatever percent distortion compounded over 50 years. And that is just a massive distortion. Like, okay, yeah, you think your iPhone is great. What could have that iPhone been if it wasn't distorted, if planned obsolescence wasn't built into the incentive structure for for Apple? Like, It's difficult to wrap your brain around the implications of what Mm -hmm. these central banks and the Fed in particular has been doing for so long. Oh, 100%. And I think adding to that is like the inequality that it creates. Because if you think about it, the majority of the lower class are the people that hold currency, whereas the majority of the upper class are the people that hold assets. So when you have a currency that is devaluing, people naturally flee from currency and they move into assets. So as asset prices go up, which is what we're seeing for pretty much since 2008, we've seen just an absolute boom in asset prices. You're seeing all of these people lose purchasing power, which is the lower class. And then you're seeing all of these people holding assets, which is the upper class, continually run away in terms of net worth and wealth. And so I think that not only is inflation diluting our money, diverting our productive capacity, and like preventing us from being able to error correct accurately as like a society, I think it's also creating a mass amount of inequality. And when you see like Jerome Powell talk about we do not believe that it is uh, creating inequality. I think they're just lying out of their teeth. Like the correlation is like 99% when you're looking at inequality and wealth distribution, and then you look at money sprinting effectively. No, I mean, when he says things like that, it either means he's completely and totally ignorant or completely and totally malicious. That's the only explanation. So uh, if you think he's an intelligent guy, then there's only one option. He has an agenda that he is not sharing with you. You know what? I want to believe that humanity does what's in their best interest for others. And, and so I do believe that people aren't necessarily inherently malicious. I think that people naturally want to protect their lineage. They want to protect their wealth. They want to protect their job. They want to protect their family. And I think because of that, they can skew the information in their head to believe what they're doing is in the best interest of the population. Like, to be honest, I don't even believe that, like, say, someone like Hitler 
is naturally malicious. I think he believes in his head that what he was doing was correct. Now, I don't believe what he was doing was correct, but I'm just saying that I think a lot of people can skew the data to believe that what they're doing is in the best interest of humanity. And I think because of this issue in basically the human genome, effectively, whereby we can skew data to believe we're doing what's in the best interest of others, this is why I lean towards something like Bitcoin being decentralized, because it removes that temptation to be selfish. And I think that I admit that humanity has flaws. And by admitting that humanity has flaws, you admit that we need to move across to something that is based on consensus and something that is more decentralized because I think it benefits everyone. So I want to share my screen here. And this is a graph that you put into your article mm-hmm. that I thought was extremely telling. So if you all are watching on YouTube, you can see this graph. But if you're not, I highly recommend to jump into the show notes, click on the article and check it out for yourself. It's in the middle. But I found this to just be absolutely jaw-dropping. People have tried to express this by pricing the SMP and BTC terms, but it's actually not nearly as effective as this. But this chart effectively shows the S&P 500 percentage of growth, I guess, measured in dollars, and then the S&P 500 growth divided by the Fed's balance sheet growth. So effectively what that does is it takes out the dollar as an independent, you know, kind of as that measuring stick and kind of levels it out and you get a drastic, drastic picture. Seb, do you want to just kind of like break this down a little bit more and articulate it to uh, the audience? Oh, 100%. So I think this graph is really, really important. I think that it gives a much better understanding as to what is happening in the financial world. And it breaks down what I was talking about the elasticity of kind of the dollar. Like a lot of people think $1 is $1. And yes, that is true. But that doesn't mean that that $1 in a year's time is purchasing the same amount that the dollar could previously have had purchased. And so the way I like to think about it is, so let's say you've got the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 goes up by 10% a year. Now, if you've got a dollar, but the dollar, also the money supply increases by 10% in a year, then effectively that 10% is probably what fueled the S&P 500 to go up 10%. So the actual net growth is zero. It hasn't actually gone up. It looks like it's gone up in dollar terms, but it hasn't gone up. It's just there have been more dollars added to the system, which has caused an inflation in the price. And so when we're looking at that chart there, right in front of us, I think it's important to note that when we look at the S&P 500, since 2008, it looks like it's grown by, I think it's around 190%. In reality, it's probably closer to negative 50, negative 60%. And we don't know the exact amount. And the issue is we don't know when the the Fed expands its balance sheet, not all of those dollars ever make it into circulation. Not all of those dollars actually end up making it into the true money supply, but it's still a far cry from 190%. So I'd be willing to bet that it's still probably negative in terms of real growth. Yeah. I mean, it's just a shocking graph and way to kind of put things into perspective. I'm trying to talk my parents out of getting another home and income property and into Bitcoin and diversifying. And I'm just like, hey, do you think your houses are going up in value? Look at the S&P 500 over time. Like mm-hmm. they're not, they're not, you know, and I know a house is better than holding dollars, but guess what? There's technology that solves this. That oh, made for this. And it's the only, te- it's the only investment that's not an overcrowded trade right now, which is just mm-hmm. unbelievable. Like every other conventional solution is extremely overbrought real estate stocks, mm-hmm. all of this stuff just to escape this devaluation, this manipulation, <laughs> this coercion of dollar mm-hmm. holders. Oh, 100%. And I think it's really fascinating. Actually, you talk about kind of the crowded trade. I remember during 
like mid to end, well, probably end of last year when Bitcoin really started to kind of pump. A lot of people were talking about like Bitcoin is a crowded trade and all of the hedge funds are coming out and saying Bitcoin is a crowded trade, like it's one of the most crowded trades out there. But the funny thing is at that time, hedge funds and most asset managers couldn't even purchase Bitcoin. So when they're saying it's a crowded trade, I think that all you have to look, do is look at the market cap of Bitcoin being sub $1 trillion. And then you look at the market cap of equities, the market cap of bonds, the market cap of real estate, and realize that it is minuscule in comparison. So when people say it's a crowded trade, they're either not looking at the right number or they don't understand what they're looking at. So we've done a very good job over the last 30 minutes of laying down the groundworks of like why money is important, why our system is broken, and why the the incumbents have an incentive to paper over that broken system and dismiss the reckoning that is Bitcoin. Like, let's jump into the rest of the article. For sure. So I, I would say like next, it's if inflation has all these negative effects that we've talked about. So we're looking at like malinvestment, we're looking at like inequality, we're looking at dilution. If it has all of these like negative effects, then why would anyone target inflation? And I think the key thing is to look at who the benefactors are of inflation. And what I would say is the government and the banks are kind of the two biggest benefactors. So first, if we jump into the government, basically, inflation gives it a few huge benefits to government. The first is that it can effectively fund itself with inflation. So I talked about open market operations and quantitative easing. Now, traditionally, the way the government effectively funds itself is it issues treasury bonds. So the US Treasury, which at the moment Janet Yellen is the head of, the US Treasury issues treasury bonds, and then global entities, corporations come and purchase these treasury bonds. And that allows the US to basically borrow money at whatever interest rate it sets, or, or it should be done by a free market, but they're effectively setting it at the moment. They're able to borrow money to be able to fund operations. Now, the issue arises with open market operations and quantitative easing, whereby they're issuing treasury bonds, the big corporate commercial banks are purchasing these treasury bonds, but then the Fed is going in and purchasing these treasury bonds back off the commercial banks. So if you were to just remove the commercial banks, what's actually happening is the Fed, an arm of the government, is just giving money and purchasing the treasury bonds off another arm of the government. So it's basically funding itself without the need for offering any true service or value. And I think this is a huge flaw in the system, because I, I believe, and, and I hope other people believe too, I believe that the government needs to act as a service provider, just like any other corporation, just like other, any other entity. And I think that in a true free market capitalistic world, I think when you're looking at service providers, they don't survive if they don't offer value. And I think the government needs to offer value to its population. And at the moment, being able to fund itself means that it can go around that supply and demand. It doesn't have to offer value. I think the second effect of inflation, which benefits government, is by targeting inflation and devaluing the currency, it reduces the deflationary effects of debt. And I know I've had a few people ask, like, what do you mean by deflationary effects of debt? So deflationary basically just means that over time, prices on things will naturally go down. And debt is very deflationary because as you have more debt, you have to spend more interest and consume more of your resources to pay down that debt. So the larger your debt burden grows, the more of your resources has to go just to be paying down debt. So as you expand the money supply, because you're diluting the dollar, you're actually reducing the debt burden because each of those dollars in debt is actually worth less. And so by inflating the money supply, it actually reduces the deflationary effects of debt. And the reason why that's important is because the US is effectively the biggest debtor in the world. And I think it's got something like $29 trillion worth of debt. So it needs to reduce the deflationary effects of debt pretty drastically because it is the biggest debtor. The final other thing why the government likes to target inflation is 
basically you've got something called financial repression. And financial repression, I think, is one of the biggest things I talk about in the article. And I think it is one of the most important things that people aren't necessarily focused on. This basically kind of looks at taxation from a different view. And I'll talk about financial repression, then I'll get into taxation. But basically, financial repression is where the government caps interest rates and it forces or suppresses interest rates below that of inflation. So let's just say, I'm just throwing out numbers just for simple math. Let's just say we have inflation of 5%, which is around where it is right now. If the government is borrowing money at 2%, then that basically means that by the time it actually has to pay back that debt, that 3% difference between the 5% inflation as the dollar is being devalued and the 2% that it is borrowing money is being passed on to the creditor, so the person who is lending that money. So effectively, not only is it borrowing money cheaper than that of inflation, it's actually passing on those borrowing costs onto the creditor. And the creditor, like you may just be like, well, like the guy's an idiot who's lending the money. But the creditor in this case is our economy. It is the savers. It is the pension funds. It is the mutual funds. It is anybody who's trying to get any form of investment because interest rates are effectively what dictate everything around us. So when they're manipulating interest rates and capping interest rates, everybody struggles because of that. And I think what people don't necessarily understand that. And so I would say like the three key reasons why government benefit is it's able to fund itself, it's able to reduce the deflationary effects of debt, and it's able to, through financial repression, borrow money at cheaper rates than that of inflation and pass on those costs to the economy, to the public. The long game of all of those things is a pretty big phrase you have here, modern day slavery. I think that a lot of listeners can relate to this just because like, I know people who are, you know, have massive student loans. They have no line of sight on buying a home. They're always going to be a renter, always going to be paying down debt, uh, never accumulating capital. And they're like looking down that barrel and they're scared, right? They're grasping for straws on, you know, how to change their outcome. Uh, And these are highly educated people. These are people who, you know, spent the money, did what they should do. And here they are with no freedom in sight, really. Oh, 100%. And this goes back to kind of the second benefactor, which was the banks. And it is usually the banks that lend that money to the students. It's the banks that lend that money to corporations. It's the banks that lend that money to the individuals that want to take out credit card debt, whatever that may be. And so the banks are the second benefactor because they're effectively able to create money out of thin air. Like we have a fractional reserve banking system, but when a bank lends money, if it has some reserves, it can basically print money. It can lend that money to whoever it wants and is able to profit on that, off that money. It didn't need to have that money in the first place. So it gains a huge advantage. And you may be asking like, well, why would the banks be given that much power? The reason why is because the banks are the people that lubricate the system. They're the ones that actually push that money out into the public because the Fed can't directly stimulate the economy. It can't just like push out dollars into the, into the public. So it needs the banks. And then on top of that, the banks are one of the largest lobbying sectors in the US. And I think in 2020, they ended up basically contributing $2.9 billion to political services and, and the political parties. So there's a huge incentive for the government and the Fed to support the banking sector. So jumping into what you briefly talked about, modern day slavery, this is kind of the crux of the article. And I, I, I wanted to touch on it. And I know Robert Breedlove talks about this as well. And I think this is really important. Earlier, I talked about how money is equal to time and energy. Now, if money is equal to time and energy, then if someone is devaluing your money and then using that productive capital to go do whatever it is that they want, then that's effectively slavery because you're stealing someone else's time and energy. And it doesn't matter whether or not they know about it. I believe that is essentially slavery. Now, I know a lot of people may disagree with that and say there's lots of positive effects of inflation, but I would say that if you're not 
authorizing someone to steal your money, then I believe that I would classify that as slavery. And I think there's an interesting quote in the, well, not a quote, basically in, I think it's 1862, a confidential letter was circulated between American bankers and British capitalists. And it basically talked about how they wanted to run the banking system and whether or not this letter is legitimate. And from my research, I believe it is legitimate. There's a lot of evidence supporting that. But whether or not this letter is legitimate, it basically talks about how we need to run a debt-based society. If we're running off a gold-backed society or a static, inelastic money supply, the government is not able to benefit. And so I think that it, it very much aptly describes the monetary system which we are using today. And so I think that's a really key piece of information for people understanding as to what's going on. So, I mean, again, it is quite insidious and your piece is, is a beast, by the way, you know, we're in terms of like just outlining the piece, we're only halfway through, but you kind of talk about to play as devil's advocate. And then you kind of get into some of the darker sides of what the existing financial system allows the U.S. government to do. Do you just want to like riff on that pretty hard for the next 10 minutes and then uh, we'll wrap this one up? Sure. Yeah. So first, I would just pull one quick quote talking about slavery, which Robert Breedlove, if you haven't read his piece, Masters and Slaves of Money, this piece is a dark piece, but he ran the math on, if you look at the monetary supply expansion from 1981 to present day, and then you looked at like the average working year for an individual, the Fed has effectively run a slave unit for 11.5 million people for 40 years straight. And so that's 341% more than the transatlantic slave trade. Like that is absolutely insane. And I think a lot of people don't understand the expansion of money and the negative effects that it is having. So leading on to that, we're probably wondering, well, inflation does have a lot of benefits to society. Like it allows government to obtain capital. It provides capital to the economy, which can aid economic growth. And it gives the Fed the ability to dampen economic stress. But I think that the key thing is to not look at what they say. I think it's better to look at what they do. So if you look at the truth behind kind of government spending, one thing I dug into is mental health and addiction spending and counterterrorism. So the government spending in 2015 for mental health and drug addiction was $5.3 billion. Now, if we look at the government spending for counterterrorism, it was $146 billion. So I think that's something like 30 times more on counterterrorism than mental health and drug addiction. Well, so then you look at the deaths and the deaths are, I think there's 95,000 deaths from mental health and drug addiction. There is 58 deaths from counterterrorism. So this is any US citizen that's died anywhere globally because of terrorism, 58 deaths. So dollars spent per death is $56,000 per death for mental health and drug, uh, drug addiction, $2.5 billion spent per death for counterterrorism. So I think that when you start looking into the numbers, you realize, like, does the government really care about us? Or are they more interested in protecting the dollar? And so we're going to dive into kind of the counterterrorism, why they're spending so much money on counterterrorism. So if we look at going back to kind of the US dollar or the US, it's basically got two major, major benefits that no other country has. And that is the world reserve currency and what is called the petrodollar. And so the world reserve currency, most of you guys probably know, is the majority of global trade is done in US dollars. Now, that's slowly changing now, but for the majority of the last like 50 years or so, that has been very prominent. Like the US has held the majority of global trade. The benefit of holding the world reserve currency is because trade is facilitated in dollars. That means that foreign countries have to hold a lot of dollar denominated debt. And when they hold dollar denominated debt, there's a lot of demand for US dollars, which strengthens the currency. And then you're looking at what's called the petrodollar. And I know Alex Gladstein, he's talking 
talk a lot about the petrodollar. Here's some phenomenal articles on the petrodollar. But the petrodollar is effectively, in 1971, when the US came off the gold standard or bread and woods, it suddenly started losing a lot of purchasing power. And the US had to find a way quickly because it was struggling. So it ended up working alongside OPEC and Saudi and forming these bilateral agreements to basically ensure that oil was priced in dollars globally. And because oil was priced in dollars, again, it had a huge advantage because it could now effectively print dollars to purchase oil to be able to operate, whereas all other countries had to purchase dollars, which strengthens the dollar for them to be able to go purchase oil. And then on top of that, Saudi was then going back and purchase with these dollars that were they were receiving from the sale of oil. It was then going back and purchasing US treasuries, which is called petrodollar recycling. But so these two things had a huge benefit for the US because basically, no matter what, other countries had to obtain dollars. And by obtaining dollars, it was basically effectively strengthening the dollar. So while they're holding dollars, not only was it strengthening dollars, but the US could then capitalize off these dollar holders by inflating the currency and performing a lot of these monetary policy to be able to help strengthen the position of the US. So if you're looking at the US and its military position, it basically now has a huge incentive to protect this because no other country is in this position. No other country can benefit from the world reserve currency and the petrodollar. And so if you actually look at US military spending, the US has spent 300% or 308% more than China. So three times more than China and more than the next 10 subsequent countries combined, which is absolutely insane. And so you're wondering why they're spending so much money on military. And it's basically to protect the dollar because the dollar is what allows it to capitalize off the majority of other countries out there and all of its currency holders. And so it is in a huge, huge position to capitalize off its currency holders. And then so what I basically say is, if you look at the US's actions when it comes to military intervention, and in the article I highlight three, which is Saddam Hussein, Hugo Chavez from Venezuela, and Gaddafi from Libya, if you look at all three of those, all of them were under the premise of like humanitarian, we're going in there to help save the people, or these people are like, they're evil people, they have WMDs, they've got links to Al-Qaeda. All of these people are perceived as this like negative narrative towards the US. Whereas when you actually dig a little deeper, you realize that like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Iraq was in fifth place for largest known oil reserves. If you look at Venezuela, Venezuela has the largest known oil reserves. Gaddafi in Libya, Libya is Africa's largest known oil reserves and is ninth in the world. Then you've got to ask yourself the question, are they actually going in there to do this like altruistic, we're going in to like save the country? Or are they going in there because these people threaten the US dollar and they threaten the oil trade? And when you look at Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein came out publicly in early 2000 and said that he's going to sell his oil for euros. And by February 2003, he had sold 26 billion euros worth of oil. March 2003, he's dead. And three months later, Iraq was back to selling in dollars. And the same thing, Hugo Chavez threatened many times that he was going to cut the US from oil. He was eventually in like a coup to try and overthrow him, which was assisted by the CIA. He was overthrown. And then eventually there was mass protests. He was reinstated, but he, the US was never cut off oil. And then like Gaddafi in Libya, he wanted to move from the US dollar to create a gold dinar. So like a currency backed by gold and start transitioning to selling in the gold dinar as opposed to selling in dollars. And so we get a very skewed narrative on why the US goes to war. And I think the reality of the situation is it's more likely to protect the dollar than it is to go in under altruistic, like humanitarian reasons. And the key kind of indicators which shows you that this may be the case is if you look at, say, like Saudi. Saudi 
we have like direct ties to Al-Qaeda. We have the Washington Post columnist, Jamal Khashoggi, I probably butchered that guy's name as well. Like he was basically killed and this was killed and ordered by Mohammed bin Salman, who's the, the head of Saudi. And then you look at like, why has the US not gone and invaded or taken offense against Saudi? Well, Saudi supplies the US with a third of its oil. Between 2015, 2019, Saudi purchases a quarter of all US arms. And then you look at like North Korea, like human rights, a human rights report by UN basically concluded that the government committed crimes against humanity, extermination, murder, enslavement, torture, imprisonment, rape, sexual violence, forced abortion. They're open about having WMDs, but North Korea doesn't have any proven oil reserves. And so the US has no reason to go in and go on the offense against North Korea. And so I think that if you look at what they do and not what they say, I think you get a much better understanding as to kind of what is really going on. Yeah, I think that that is very thorough, very powerful, going to be pulling a lot of clips out of this one. Seb, thank you so much for coming on the show, breaking down so many complex subjects. To all the listeners out there, you need to follow Seb. He is extremely underfollowed. Probably, you know, you don't tweet all that much, but the quality of the knowledge that you're dropping on the day-to-day is just unbelievable. So make sure to give Seb a follow. Seb, where can people follow you? And what's your last word for the Bitcoin Magazine audience? Yeah, so feel free to just check out my Twitter account, which is Seb Bunny. That's S-E-B-B-U-N-N-E-Y. As for like content, I love just educating people. The social media side of things I definitely struggle with. I think I think I spend more of my time in the mountains. But I think Bitcoin in general, I think, is one of the biggest defining factors of this generation. And I think this may be one of the biggest defining factors when we look back in history. And so for me, I think this is incredibly important to get a deeper understanding as to like what is going on in this world right now. And people may want to kind of have this willful blindness and kind of pretend that everything's going to be all right. But I think that we are at a big inflection point. And I think we need to like stand up and demand like monetary equality. I think I think this is incredibly important. And so we only touched on like part of the article and it's such a deep one. So I apologize if I've rambled, but yeah, you guys should definitely check it out. And uh, I'm always open to feedback, criticism. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, truly, guys, this is a beast. I was trying to like take notes and prepare for this, and I ended up having a massive list. I was like, oh, man, it's going to be a doozy trying to fit this in the 45-minute podcast. But you got to check out the article. You got to check out Seb's entire author page. He has three great articles there, and I think you even have more on your medium. So Seb has been dropping knowledge. Go check him out. Go to his Twitter. But until then, follow me at CK underscore snarks. Follow the magazine at Bitcoin Magazine. And if you have amazing thoughts about Bitcoin, if you have been pondering about the ecosystem, you know, holler at us. We're trying to just find the best thinkers in the space and give them a platform. So that could be you one day. But until then, Bitcoiners, stack sats, be well. Peace. Yeah.